everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of my podcast. I am Father Roderick, and you are listening to The Break. I am currently podcasting from the planet Hoth, and I am tempted to cut open a, a wampa or something to, to get warm or <laughs> anything, because I am freezing. Right now, it is 14 degrees in this room, and I finally... What was that bloop? Oh, I know what that is. That is my Mastodon thingy that is, like... I don't know how to turn off these notifications. It's There's always something. I, I've turned off the audio coming from the computer. I always get that when I install something new on my computer then or, or, or on my phone. It starts making these noises, or it starts, like, shaking whenever there's a notification. I really don't like notifications. But then I'm often too forgetful to turn it off. Anyway, so it's 14 degrees in this room, and I finally figured out why this office, where I do most of my work, is so cold every single winter. Well, I've only been here for one winter. This is second winter, technically. Um, I went upstairs. There's an attic here, but it's very, you know, it's not meant to be used. Uh, so there's this... this, this um, what is it? Opening, I have to lower a, a very like flimsy uh, staircase, and then I climb up. And I was looking around, and I noticed that this exactly here, the ceiling above this office, has not been insulated. We, when we, we did the renovations, we put like these big, fluffy, um, what is it actually? Like these rolls of, of uh, insulating material up, up, uh, across the entire surface of the ceiling but this room up up on this room this is the only part where you can actually walk the rest of the 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 attic you cannot walk there it's it's like an open ceiling you would fall straight through the very you know thin ceiling here um but this part is covered with wood but has never been insulated so and so they kind of forgot about that or well they didn't bother uh, putting any insulation material uh, on top of the floor where you can walk. And and so basically what separates me from the attic where it's just as cold as outside is just this this thin ceiling that we that we put up here. It's like five millimeters. So I need to do something about that because I it's it's still, you know, it's not even really winter. It's about uh, 12 degrees outside right now, but of course it will go sub-zero and I need this room to podcast and to work. And, of course, I could... Uh, what is that sound? Oh, it's an ambulance. Yeah, that's what you get. <laughs> like the, the road next to, next to the, the, the office is a very busy road, and there is a hospital nearby, and so all the ambulances for the area always pass next to my house. And the window here, <laughs> that's another reason that it's so cold, is really old and it's like plastic there is again it's not insulated it's, it's i think they installed it in the early 90s or something it needs to be replaced but but right now the prices are super uh, high and uh, a lot of the installation companies are very busy so there are long delays um but all that makes that this maybe is the the least um appropriate room to do my work because you've got the all the noise from the road outside that leaks into this room and then you've got the cold and it I do have central heating in this room but even if I turn it full you know at like 
at five or six, it's got like a scale of like six is the maximum. It, it, it gets warm, but the room doesn't heat up. And so now I know why. Anyway, <laughs> what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. Face it, Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. At the start of each, po- each podcast, I talk about the news, and I've got some community news. As you know, um, my community is um, is everywhere. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of different communities everywhere. I've got a TikTok community, YouTube community, social media community, but I've also got a community of patrons, people that support me on a monthly basis, and I ha- can welcome two new members of that uh, great community. Um, and uh, the first member of... Uh, is is has a name that is really hard to pronounce, so I'll do my best. It's Oljoy Onoy. And I really hope that I didn't butcher it too much. But it's uh, thank you so much for joining the community. I wonder where the name comes from. If, if it's, it sounds a bit, well, it could be basically any country. But yeah, maybe I should just ask. Like, hey, interesting name, but... Where is that from? And then um, Allison also joined the community of patrons. So thank you so much. And then I also need to thank Stephen, Stephen uh, Edenson, for upping his tier. So he went from the 250 tier to the 5 euro tier, which gives you access, or $5 tier. It gives you access to the the weekly flagship show that I record for, for my um, uh, $5 patrons, um, which is called Story Secrets. And I've just posted a brand new episode in which I go like really deep diving into Star Wars Endor. It's like a show that is a, an hour and a half long where I dissect the episodes uh, 7, 8, and 9 of Star Wars Endor. And I'm going to do one other big Andor show when the first season is finished. So then I will do uh, 10, 11, 12. What an amazing show that is. Really, really cool. Um, uh, I, I, that's it. That's basically all the news. So let's move on to the world of... Movies. Not like movies and TV They're shows. Predictable, like the guy gets the girl, and that kid sees dead people, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm gonna give it to you. Listen to this. Twenty-five pounds? No, no, no. I ordered two hundred. What is beef? You still got that meat connect? You get twelve fifty for that on eBay. Boom. You cut vegetables like a bitch. Not system. System, baby. System. System. This is your brother's house. I was running it fine without you. Why didn't he leave it to you then? Don't wipe your hands on your apron, chef. Jeff, I refer to everybody as chef because it's a sign of respect. You can throw down, huh? Behind, behind. So how you gonna pass the family test? Delicious or impressive? Delicious is impressive. Well, all right. Yo, family's up. I just never had platanos with, like, grass on it. <laughs> we want 
want to change this restaurant, right? But we have to change the chemistry. Man, why are you always, like, watching me? Because it's just sort of my job. We're the Chili Flakes. Because it organizes, it's more confusing. Right there. Label Chili Flakes. This is a delicate ecosystem, and it's held together by a shared history and love. I have every intention of turning this into a respectable place of business. Eventually. Time to try the new sandwiches. Yo, this shit looks different. What do you think? It's redundant and white, just like you. <laughs> that was the sound of the trailer for a new television show that I've been checking out, and I am hooked. The show is called The Bear, and it was originally aired on Hulu, and it's now also available for Disney Plus members here in Europe on the Stars label. The reason that Disney Plus does not promote this as a Disney production uh, is probably because the very steady amount of swear words in this television series. So what is it about? It is a story about um, a young chef um, who actually has worked in one of the best restaurants in the United States, um, has um, you know a fantastic, promising career there, but then inherits the deli of his brother who actually killed himself. And we don't know exactly what happened or why he took over that deli. But he, when the, when the series starts, he is working there in the heart of, of Chicago. He is from New York originally. So he was working in this very fancy restaurant and now he's working in this very old deli where people have no idea about uh, fine uh, the fine cuisine that he was used to. And he has to also deal with his cousin who actually expected to, to inherit the, the business, still is in charge in a certain way. Um, and there is lots and lots of drama in that first episode. So he wants to turn that deli into um, a phenomenon. <laughs> Basically, he brings all his his skills to this very humble place uh, with the, this this ideal to turn it around, maybe as a, as a, a way to honor his, his brother. Uh, I don't know exactly. It, it, that's one of the things that I like so much about this television series. You feel that there's so much under the surface, but you don't know exactly why people are acting the way they do, why they are behaving the way they do. But over time, you get to know these people and you start to discover their backstory and what, what has been going on. And it, it, for me, it, it's, a, it's the, maybe the best way to engage me. I want to know why these people are there and why they clash and, and why sometimes they come together. And it's, it's, a, it's really, really well done. Um, the whole television show has a very gritty feel to it. It's almost like a mockumentary, but it's not really a comedy. It, it, it's I think it's supposed to be a bit of a comedy, but it's also very raw and sometimes even hard to watch because there's so much yelling at each other and so much drama, especially in the first episode. But there are also these touching moments where people start to kind of defrost a little bit, show their human side, and it's all about people that are very broken but are also finding healing in the way they interact with each other trying to build up this restaurant. 
And it starts in a very bad place. Nothing is going well. There are huge debts. It, it, the whole Delhi is feels like uh, the beginning of an episode of of um, uh, Hell's Kitchen. You know, like where, the series where Gordon Ramsay goes and visits all these fledgling restaurants and then tries to turn them around. Well, that series has become something super formulaic and and artificial. And it, in fact, if you uh, if you've ever watched one of those episodes, the, the first one. Uh, the first series that uh, Gordon Ramsay did in uh, in the UK and in Scotland was really really good because it it was low budget and it you could you could see the real Gordon Ramsay and then later on the US kind of bought the format and they started to do this American version of it and it all became a format basically where the they would deliberately choose the, the restaurant, not only restaurants that were doing very badly, but also the ones with really um, outspoken managers and people and cooks. And it was all about the drama. And you could tell that a lot of the drama was also manufactured afterwards through editing and and music. And it all became this. And then Gordon Ramsay is starting to yell at all these people and telling them that they have to get real and where's your, your original love for food. And then magically the restaurant that of course has to also look very uh, in very bad shape is uh, transformed during one night by a team of designers into this very fancy place and then of course the the, the last part of the of the episode is showing how much more successful they are well if you look up a few of those restaurants where are they now after the the crew visited that place all of them are closed. All of them went down the drain. And it kind of, it's disheartening to see that, you know, a TV show cannot fix what is broken on the level of the people that run it. And you cannot just wave a wand and then leave things behind and, and then everything is, is, is okay. It doesn't work like that in real life. What I like about this series is that it shows you that kind of same dynamic where it, the, at first the deli is so dirty and so um, they're making horrible food. Um, and, 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 but you also see the passion of this young chef who really wants to turn this around. But everybody resists the changes. We can all identify with a plight like that. We've all been there where we wanted to do something great and then it looks as if the universe is conspiring against us and people st constantly don't get what we want. And then it's, it's this persistence. But what I love about this series is that they show that it's actually super hard. And there is, in the first episode, they kind of at first make you believe that he's going to turn things around in the first episode. Because he's got these great ideas and you're like, wow, you're almost expecting Gordon Ramsay to arrive and then, let me just fix this. Look at how awful this all looks. And let me I cannot do Gordon Ramsay imitations, but <laughs> with a fresh lick of paint and a few new chairs and some nice cutlery, uh, everybody will, uh, will want to eat here. It, it, it doesn't work like that. And... Also, this young chef uh, played uh, excellent acting work by Jeremy Allen. So realistic. I mean, it's almost as if you are watching a documentary. Um, you feel like he knows what he's doing. 
And, and, and you're like, oh, well, of course he's going to succeed. He loves food. And we are trained to know that if someone has a passion, then that will, all, that will immediately yield fantastic results. Like follow your passion. If you do what you love, then you will never have to work a single day in your life anymore. Well, this television show, <laughs> show is kind of a reality check, even though it's fiction. And it's like, no, no, it takes way more for this to work than just another menu or better food. It takes healing. It takes people coming to terms with their past and, and changing their behavior because they realize that they're stuck and, and things don't change unless they change. And the whole series is about these dynamics. What makes it also so realistic is filmed in a real deli, you can tell. This is not a set. Um, and there are lots and lots of, there's lots of footage of, um, of Chicago, which I always love. I, I have a thing for Chicago. I've never been there, but I want to go there and I don't know why. It's maybe because my, my, one of my first loves when it comes to television was ER, which supposedly took place in Chicago. It wasn't filmed in Chicago at all. That was just stock footage that they used. Um, <laughs> this was all filmed in LA and they used fake snow and everything. But just seeing those images of the like the the the, the tram system above the uh, above the streets, there's there's so much atmosphere in in Chicago. I don't know why, um, but so, so I I I love that from this series that it is really um, you know you get a good feel of the place. Um, of course, being a European, I don't know if the accents are convincing or not. Um, that was, thankfully, I'm not distracted by that. But um, what also makes it very realistic is just the swearing. This is not a serious... If you're a little bit, mm, like, sensitive to the A, B, C, D, E, F, S, G, T words or whatever, you know, <laughs> like every single swear word in the dictionary and even that swear words that are not in the dictionary. It's all yelled here <laughs> all the time. And we know, actually, that that is very common in the restaurant business. Apparently, it's a world where swearing is just part of life. But it's just a word of warning, because I know that some of you really don't appreciate that kind of language. You definitely don't want to watch this when your kids are playing in a room, because they may actually start to parrot some of that language, which will get you in trouble. But I kind of get it because it this is the the whole idea of the show is to make it feel real and realistic and in real life people swear <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, well that that's why in this series it's not bleeped out like in the Gordon Ramsay shows where it almost becomes a gimmick where where like half of the dialogue is bleeped because he's just a bleep in bleep <laughs> <laughs> not here uh, and that is probably why Disney Plus like oh thankfully we have this part of our catalog that we branded stars and we'll just put it there or I think isn't Hulu also owned by Disney um, yeah <laughs> it's just it's, it's kind of the American sensitivity to that kind of stuff um, anyway so highly recommend it if you have access to it uh, I th I'm not sure if it's on on Disney Plus for everyone in Europe. Um, it is over here. Um, in, and I think on Hulu, it's on... Um, uh, oh, in the United States, it's on Hulu. 
<laughs> on Hulu, it's on the channel United States of America. I don't know if you have that channel, but you should get it. It's interesting. Lots of drama. <laughs> Catholics rock! And now it's time for a place and a company that will never swear at you. <laughs> On the contrary. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? This segment is called The Peculiar Bunch because, well, Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. Or worse. Um, but I'd like to explain what we do. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So, um, the Peculiar Bunch is kind of my nickname. It has been my the nickname for Catholics uh, since I started to record these segments, which I think dates back all the way to 2005. <laughs> The the jingle that you hear is actually composed by my brother. He made this on a computer uh, way back when. And I've been using this all the time because I keep getting questions from people that follow me. And uh, it's just, yeah, yeah. What is this about this or that in the Catholic tradition? Or, you know, can you explain this? Uh, right before I started this recording, I got a good question in, um, in the chat room because I'm streaming this live as well. And um, the question was, uh, why... Why do Catholics during Mass, why do, in the middle of Mass, they have this collection and it's all about money and people have to, like, put money in a basket? That, that, that doesn't feel very spiritual to me. Why, why don't you guys just do that at the end, you know? Like, the money business feels so contrary to the spiritual business that you guys should be in, right? Why, why is that? And so I explained, it's actually, there's, there's a very, um, uh, I think, important reason why this is part of the liturgy. And it's literally part. It's not just a pause where we do like, oh, by the way, where's your ticket? Um, it's an integral part of the, of the liturgy itself. And it has been for a very, very long time. I'm not a liturgy historian, so I couldn't really tell you when this started, but I'm pretty sure that this has been part of, let's say, the Catholic celebrations for maybe since the very beginning. And it is because um, if you look at when this takes place, it is after we've been reading in the Bible, right? So there's always this liturgy of the word where we read... Um, Three readings plus a psalm. And so it's like four biblical readings on Sunday Mass. The first reading is usually, not always, but usually from the Old Testament. The psalm is obviously from the Old Testament. Then the second reading is oftentimes taken from the letters that the apostles wrote or the, you know, the early Christians wrote to the, the, the communities. Um, or it can also be a reading from the Acts of the Apostles, which is the, the part of the Bible that follows um, the, the, the Gospels. And that, sh that tells us the story of you know, these early times of the Apostles and their travels and whatnot. And then, of course, you've got the, the, the most important reading is, is the Gospel. And that comes from one of the four Gospels. So we've, we've been hearing all these stories from the Bible, and that is followed by an explanation. We call that the homily or sermon, 
Um, and, and that's a conversation where the priest shares uh, a bit of his knowledge of, you know, how should you interpret these readings? How can that apply to your own life? And that is followed by the creed, where it's basically it's like an answer. Like we've been hearing all these stories about our faith, and now we want to proclaim this faith. We want to say and we want to tell each other that we believe in this message. We believe that this is important. We stand for it. That's why we rise. And then we pray. So it's the, 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 the prayers of the, of the congregation. And that's that whole ritual um, is then followed by the preparation of the altar. That's where you start the, the, the second big chunk, you could say, of the liturgy on Sunday, which is the liturgy of the Eucharist. Eucharistia in, in Greek means uh, to give thanks. And that's so that starts with preparations. The, the altar uh, boys or girls or the acolytes bring gifts to the altar, um, bread and wine. Um, and the priest offers these gifts with a gesture. You literally, I take the bread and I lift it up and I say a little prayer and the same happens with the chalice, with the wine. Um, and it's, it's uh, a... It starts with with a thank you, thank you for this bread, thank you for this wine. It will become the bread of life. It will become the body of Christ. It will become our spiritual drink. This will become the blood of Christ in the in this Eucharist. And while these gifts are are being brought to the altar, um, there is also a collection uh, of gifts from the people in church. And why is that? It is because the, the liturgy, what we celebrate on Sunday, the Eucharist, cannot be separated from the rest of the week. We are supposed to... That's why a Mass is called a Mass. It means mission. This is the beginning of the, of the mission that goes on every single moment of, our, of, of the rest of the week. And so, what is Mass all about? It's about... Christ giving himself to us in under the species of bread and wine. So visibly, in terms of what you taste, it, it is still bread and wine, but it is transformed into the body and blood of Christ. So we, we celebrate, Catholics believe that this is the ultimate gift where we are, we are given Christ himself. He, he says in the gospel, you know, whoever eats this bread and drinks from this chalice, drinks this wine, is eats my body and my blood. And so uh, it's Christ giving himself to us. How does that relate to the rest of our mission? Well, that's what we're supposed to do for each other as well. In the footsteps of Christ, we are also supposed to give ourselves to the people that come to us for help, for food, for clothes, for a listening ear, you know, all that. We are supposed to become givers. But that's not naturally our behavior most of the time. We are we have turned into takers. We want to we we want the world to bring us stuff and we often forget that that the, the secret to a happy life is to become a giver because that's how we resemble God, who is a giver, not a taker. Christ says it himself. I'm, I'm here to serve. I have not come to judge or to rule. 
I'm, I'm here to give my life for my friends. And I want you to do the same. That's what he says during the Last Supper when he washes the feet of the apostles. Like, I do this for you. You call me a rabbi, a master. I do this for you. I wash your feet. Do that. Wash each other's feet. Feed each other. Help each other. Give each other from what you have. Everything that God gives you is given to you so you share it. And this is why in the liturgy of Catholics, there's this moment of giving. And what is this for? It's to support the poor. And in fact, even before people would bring money to the church, they would often also bring food and other gifts. And, uh, and all that would be brought to the altar, would be uh, placed in front of the altar as a sign like, Jesus gives himself to us. And we want to give back. We want to give to, for, for the people in need. And then after Mass, this would be brought to the people in need, to the poor. And, of course, the church itself also is, is, lives from donations. The church is not the best business model in a sense that it, it doesn't make money. And so in, in, in a lot of countries, the churches and also the priests, they live because of gifts. And so um, the, the, the thing is, in our very, let's say, in the, in, this, in the whole liturgy itself, it becomes a bit, it can become abstract. Uh, this is why, at least in the Netherlands, we, uh, we always mention why people give in the collection. So uh, oftentimes there will, there, well, not always, but in, in the churches that I've served so far, um, oftentimes there are two collections. There's one t- where people are told this is to support your community, to support the pastoral work that we do. Um, the the you know we 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 need to pay for the heating uh, in the winter. Um, we th- there are expenses for the work, the pastoral work that we do. You make that possible that we can be there for people. And the second collection is often for the poor or for the missionaries, or for sometimes it's the food distribution center in town, or the care for the homeless, or, you know, all sorts of stuff. So the fact that we have a collection during Mass is not because we're focused on money. It's to help us to stay in this giving frame of mind, because that is what we celebrate in the Eucharist, is the gift of Jesus, and that's what we should celebrate the rest of the week, and that is that we are put in a position where we are able to give ourselves to others, and we know from experience that that is what makes us truly happy. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I did a ton of reading this past week, but... It's what I read this morning that really, really, really got me excited. I saw a post on, on Mastodon of someone who said, hey, did you notice that there is a, a new audiobook that premieres today? And it's the audiobook version of a, a book that came out, um, I think, last year or maybe even two years ago, uh, called The Fall of Numenor. And I remember when it came out, this was before The Rings of Power was... Well, they were probably already producing it, but it wasn't a thing yet. So The Fall of Numenor is a collection of stories 
based on, of course, the tremendous work that that Christopher Tolkien, uh, uh, Tolkien's son, did, uh, taking stories from the Silmarillion and from some other works, uh, Tolkien created a lot of backstory for for his uh, for his world, and and then he uh, put together a number of these stories uh, under the title of the Fall of Numenor, um, trying to create a bit of a consistent story that would bring together all these fragments of what happened with the civilization of Numenor. When that came out, I was excited, um, but I still, it was Second Age, and I didn't know much about the Second Age. I hadn't read the Silmarillion yet at that time, and so I was like, yeah, you know, I bought it when it was on Amazon on sale, but I never read it, because I felt, I felt, it was so daunting, the whole First Age and Second Age, it felt like this, ugh, thankfully in The Lord of the Rings, you're not really supposed to know all these things. You know it's in the background, but it's not required reading. But now that The Rings of Power has come out, of course, all that is so much more tangible. And we've seen Numenor, we've, we've seen the, the world of the Second Age. And so when I heard that today would be the premiere of the audiobook version of The Fall of Numenor, I went online and looked at my Storytel account, which is similar to Audible. It's also available on Audible uh, starting today. And I saw that they already had it. So I started listening to the audiobook this morning. And what a difference that makes. Unbelievable. It's so well done. It's, it's, there are multiple voices. And it's not just the stories from about Numenor, which is this island. It's a little bit like uh, Atlantis in a certain way. It's the Middle Earth uh, variant, you could say, of the stories of Atlantis, which actually is has been one of the the stories that Tolkien wanted to write even before he started writing The Hobbit. Um, so it's not just those stories and that history, but it's also the first part of the book is an introduction. And it tells you how Tolkien developed this idea of the Second Age and Numenor and all that and why, where it came from. And I, it was just riveting. And every time they are reading from the letters of Tolkien, um, it's a different voice. And so it's almost like a radio play. You're, you're like, wow, this is, I was fascinated. And um, it also helps that this is read um, by people who actually know what they're talking about. Um, and so all the, the elvish words are pronounced correctly. It's, it's just sublime. It's such, so much fun listening to these great voices reading all that material. Um, plus, for me, it was a super uh, handy explainer. Uh, some of the stuff I already knew, other things were completely new to me. And it's very well done, that introduction. And so, based on that, when you then d dive into the chronology of the events, considering Numenor, it, off, it becomes a lot more coherent and easier to follow, which is one of the issues that I had with the Silmarillion when I tried to read it, the, the book on paper, because I then afterwards started to listen to the audiobook, which was so much better as an experience than just reading it on paper. When I first started to try to read the Silmarillion, I was just like, oh, so many names, so much elvish. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce this, let alone like 
like conceptualize it was and then it just went all over the place there's so many different stories in the Silmarillion of course most of the Silmarillion is first age and it's towards the end when he talks about Numenor among other things that's where you enter the second age but it's only at the end of the Silmarillion but now with having seen the rings of power um, and then having read the Silmarillion listening to this introduction I feel like all of a sudden things are finally falling into place and I'm starting to get a grasp of what Tolkien was trying to do. Now, in the introduction, there were a couple of things that I want to mention here, uh, just little teasers to motivate you to um, to read this for yourself. Um, in the introduction, uh, it's explained that, the, in fact, the destruction of Numenor or the downfall of Numenor um, came from a dream. This came from a nightmare, a recurring nightmare that Tolkien had. And he writes about it in his letters. And he said, I'm dreaming of this like huge wave, this, well, he didn't, didn't call it a tsunami because that word wasn't uh, as well known as it is today. But this huge flood wave that, that flushes over the countryside and destroys everything inside. And it's very frightening. And that dream keeps coming back. And so I just started to write it down. And I started to integrate that in this idea. So he first wanted to, when he was starting The Inklings, right, with uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, among others, um, they challenged each other to write stories because the stories that were there for them just didn't have what it takes. They, they, they wanted to read other stories and then they just told each other well why don't we write those stories and they challenged each other so Tolkien challenged C.S. Lewis to write science fiction he said you write something about other planets and then C.S. Lewis challenged Tolkien you write something about time travel I bet you you didn't know that so he could have written Doctor Who but he didn't know actually Doctor Who has nothing to do with Tolkien but I'm just intrigued by the idea of Tolkien. What would Tolkien have written in an alternate universe if he had done that and he had written an like an epic series about time travel? Oh my gosh, how cool would that be? But C.S. Lewis actually did write this trilogy, this space trilogy, but he did it as a as a you know a metaphor, like a, a it was all to express. Um, certain philosophical and theological truths. Um, Tolkien wanted to write mythology, and he struggled with this idea. He was like, okay, time travel, how am I going to do well, What if I go back in time and I retell a story? And, and then he was dabbling with this dream of his, and he's like, well, maybe I can do like an alternate version of, the, of, the, uh, of, of Atlantis, and I go back in time, and, it, and he couldn't figure it out. It didn't work. But then... He's like, so what What do I want to write? I want to write this, this mythology of Atlantis. And then even in his early drafts, you already find certain names that later on would be used for elves and other characters in the Second Age. Um, but they were originally part of that Atlantis story that never materialized. And then, of course, he wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He started to write The Silmarillion and all the backstory. And that's where that idea came back in the form of Numenor, destroyed by a great flood. I never knew that. It's fascinating to discover that in the introduction. Um, and I guess that writing it down for him was a way to exercise himself in a certain way. 
he felt the, because these dreams, these nightmares were haunting him. And he, he, he actually tells his friends in his letters, like, I think maybe by writing it down, I won't dream about it as much. And then, it's so funny. The other day, literally yesterday evening, I was watching an episode of For All Mankind, which is this Ronald D. Moore series on Apple TV+. Um, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it tells it like an alternate history. What if the Russians were the first ones to land on the moon and the Americans were trying to catch up? Um, it's a fantastic series, uh, very well executed. So I was watching an episode of the first season and uh, they want to, land. the Russians have not only were the first to land on the moon, but they are also the first to have a woman walk on the moon, a woman astronaut, which in the 60s was kind of a big deal. And now Nixon, who is still a president, he never got uh, um, you know, discovered in this alternate history. He wa also wants to have a woman on, on walking on the moon. And so they send up this woman, and her husband is also... Uh, he's having these nightmares about his wife dying on the moon. And he paints paintings. He's a bit of a hippie. Uh, so he smokes marijuana, gets high, and then starts painting. And then so his house is filled with paintings of his wife dying the most gruesome deaths on the surface of the moon. And then, uh, uh, well, anyway, I won't spoil the story too much. But literally yesterday in that television episode, he says, I'm painting this so I don't dream about it anymore. And then this morning I read the same remedy like the same therapy that Tolkien was 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 doing when he wrote the story about Numenor fascinating it's just like wow events are starting to rhyme in my life what is happening is this reality or am I also in a dream <laughs> um what else did I notice in that um uh introduction I think that was it oh yeah there was one other thing um like why why the difference with C.S. Lewis? Why did Tolkien want to write mythology and not uh, an analogy or metaphors? Um, so that's addressed in the introduction. I cannot um, explain it as well as the introduction, but it, it has to do with his whole idea of what is the role of storytelling. And he says that all these myths ultimately come down to the same element. So a lot of, he integrates a lot of the, the fall of Adam and Eve also in the symbolism of Numenor. He says, basically, mankind right now is in this situation where we've been given a second chance after the fall from grace by Adam and Eve. We've been redeemed, but we're still mortal, right? We're not immortal yet. So we're kind of in this in-between phase, aka <laughs> Middle Earth, Numenor, it it's, it's in its essence the same story. But I don't want it to be just be a mirror story. Like, that's how C.S. Lewis would write it. And he says, well, because ultimately mythology can be different from just historic observations or fairy tales because myths express the, the truth. The truth shines forth in all our myths. Also in the myths that he was creating. He was very well aware that, of course, it was all imagination, but he also felt that there was a deeper truth expressing itself through his stories, through him. I was like, wow, that is 
that is deep. I need to think about this. I love that. So all that is in the introduction to the fall of Numenor. Anyway, I've been going on for way too long about this, but go check it out. And if you have access to the the Audible version, or if you are on Storytel, or, or maybe you just buy the audiobook, I'd say it's worth it. Speaking of audiobooks, one last tip. Um, Andy Serkis just the other day did an interview. He's, of course, uh, big right now in Star Wars Andor, uh, in which he has a fantastic role. Um, but we all know him, of course, as the, the actor who uh, played and voiced Gollum in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Well, he announced that he will be recording The Silmarillion. Um, he has already done a fantastic audiobook recording of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Highly recommended. It. It's fantastic. He does all the voices. And not just Gollum. I mean, it's all the voices. It's amazing. I've never heard something like that. So it's, it's, it's sheer joy. Someone who's so well-versed in, in the world of Middle-earth, not just because of his role, but he loves Tolkien. He's very, very knowledgeable. Um, and then having him read The Silmarillion, so looking forward to it. It's going to be amazing. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. I would like to talk about a very recent technology, uh, which is mesmerizing it's so incredibly cool i'm not talking about gadgets i'm not talking about phones or vr goggles but artificial intelligence when it comes to art you must know about this uh you've probably if you're on on social media you may have seen these like digitally painted uh images that are completely created by a computer, by artificial intelligence. Uh, the, the two leaders in the field are um, a service called DALI and even more uh, famous Mid Journey. And the idea is uh, we have this artificial intelligence where, you know, with this big data, you know, huge, huge uh, computational systems that are fed by all the data that's available on the internet nowadays, you can train computers to to use all that knowledge to create something new. If you want an example of that, think of the voice of Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, in The Mandalorian Season 3. You remember that we saw a, a young version of Luke Skywalker um, completely computer-generated. Now, we know, of course, that with the deep fake technology, etc., they can do pretty convincing depictions of human beings. This is always a little bit of that uncanny valley, but it's getting really, really close, where it's it's almost impossible to distinguish between a real actor and a digitally created actor. But that is still kind of conventional technology. What blew me away even more was maybe the 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 thing that that most people didn't notice or didn't realize, and that is the voice of Mark Hamill sounded as if it was recorded when Mark Hamill himself was in his 20s. And, but it's all new lines 
So they didn't just reuse lines like they did in uh, an episode of Star Trek Prodigy that I watched the other day where um, they have, this is a fantastic episode. I love Star Trek Prodigy, by the way. It's an animated series made for kids. It's on Nickelodeon, but it's, it's highly recommended for adults as well. It's, it's a really fun story. And so in this one episode, they're in this holodeck simulation and they can conjure up great captains and crew members from the past. And so in this one episode, you will have on the bridge Spock and uh, um, uh, oh, oh, Odo is there, Chakotay, um, gosh, who else? Anyway. Uhura is there too, and they but they use for some they used the actors if they were still alive, and for others they used like with Spock they just use sound bites from from the early episodes, and you can tell because it sounds different. It doesn't sound very, you know, it's you can tell they just lifted uh, quotes from from various episodes. But in Star Wars, in The Mandalorian, they did something completely new. They re-rendered Mark Hamill's voice. So apparently, Mark Hamill did actually. Uh, record the lines, but, well, you know how Mark Hamill sounded in the sequels, right? He's got this gravelly voice. He's an older actor right now, and his voice has really changed a lot. In a a certain way, Harrison Ford, who's much older than than Mark Hamill, sounds still sounds very much as the way he sounded when he was young. (laughs) Mark Hamill, really not the same voice. Um, Carrie Fisher, when she was still alive, same thing. Her, Her voice as an older person was... Well, she wasn't that old, but she was in her early 60s. Uh, but but the, the smoking, the drinking, the substance abuse, it really ravaged her voice. Um, but so Mark Hamill did record the lines for The Mandalorian, but then they used artificial intelligence. They used computer, uh, computational voice generation to, and, and they fed the, the algorithm with old audiobook recordings by Mark Hamill. So, for instance, the, you have the radio dramas um, where you have a lot of recordings that were done when Mark Hamill was the age that he has in, you know, the, 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 the original movies. They fed that into the computer and then the computer took the current voice of Mark Hamill and tweaked it so that it sounded like the young Mark Hamill. It was insanely well done. They did the same, actually. Even they went went one step further um, with Darth Vader. They in in the the what was it? The Obi Wan Kenobi series. There's this confrontation between Obi Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker, aka Darth Vader. None of those lines were recorded. This was all generated by the computer using the original recordings of James Earl Jones. And actually, James Earl Jones apparently has signed away the rights to his voice, at least his Darth Vader voice. And so they, they can just use a computer to uh, say whatever they want Darth Vader to say. Well, the visual equivalent of that is what is currently going on with uh, Mid Journey, where a computer can generate art based on phrases, based on just, you, you just type in, a phrase like I want to like the other day I was experimenting with it with this and I typed in um, I think it's uh, imagine slash imagine or something like that um, 
a Catholic procession on the planet Mars. And then it gave me four pictures. It started to calculate. And at first you get, you see the rendering process, which is amazing. So you get four versions of Mars, the planet Mars. So it's a bit red and you see some stars in the sky and then some hills and looks very much like Mars. And then it started to paint these figures. And then one of the, one of the images was this kind of like almost looked like an apparition of the Virgin Mary, like this, this luminous being with a, a halo and, and then tiny figures walking towards that that figure. But the four images were very different interpretations of that same phrase. And then uh, you, you can pick one and you say, hey, I, I want you to continue on this theme um, or I just want this but in higher resolution. And so it did this big, High resolution. If you're on Discord, um, you you can see my the version I posted it in the general section of our uh, Patreon Discord, um, and it shows a, a a kind of dystopian Martian well Martian la- landscape is probably always dystopian looking because it's not a very hospitable environment, and then you've all these kind of robed figures walking towards the horizon, and then you see something that looks a bit like a statue of the Virgin Mary or something like that, with a light on it. And it's like, wow, you could actually print that out and hang it on the wall. This is and and this has never been seen before. No, nobody has ever painted this. And and you can add other keywords to it, and the computer will will try to come up with something that evokes what you wrote down. Now, this is currently version three. Um, and what what is interesting is that, of course, they have fed this algorithm this artificial intelligence with millions of pictures um among which of course also copyrighted artwork which is also a bit contentious because some artists are complaining that well hey but if they scanned in my art and now the computer can produce something that looks like my art shouldn't i have rights to this can they can they do this uh, i think there's there going to be some interesting legal battles fought over this but can you really stop this? Google has been doing this. Amazon has been doing this with voices as well. If you look at the evolution of the, of the voice synthesis of Siri or Alexa, Google is a bit behind, I feel like. that Some of their voices are, are great, but for instance, the voice that I have on my Android phone, when it reads books, it still sounds like something from five years ago. It's very artificial, not... Very nice to listen to, but especially Alexa. I'm always super impressed. If if I ask Alexa to read me my latest Kindle book, it sounds like literally like someone is reading that to me. It sounds like a real person. Um, anyway, the uh, at one point, you know, there is just so much data that it's impossible to say. Well, this was clearly inspired by this or that artist. Um, they're currently working on version four of Midjourney. It's not even in beta yet. It's in alpha, so very, very early. Um, and they've completely rebuilt the artificial intelligence engine. And they fed it. There is a whole explainer, if you look for it. Um, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes. Where they tell you how they rebuilt the whole engine. The results, the early results are mind-boggling. I mean, I was already impressed by 
by what Midjourney version three was able to produce, but that was still a bit abstract. And you're like, yeah, I see what they're doing. And well, the simpler, of course, the command, the better it looks. Like if you say, I just a bowl of fruit with uh, cinematic lighting, you get something that actually really looks like a bowl of fruit. If you do like a Catholic procession on the planet Mars, you get something that evokes that, but it's, yeah. It's also a bit creepy and a bit dystopian and a bit weird. But version 4, they, they fed it so many more forms of art. And, and so what comes out of those renders is just insanely detailed. And, 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 and unlike anything I've ever seen before. The, what is also interesting is that um, the, the, the business model of mid-journey, because of course all that is, uh, requires a lot of comp computational power. So... That obviously needs to be paid. Well, they actually have a paid model. You you uh, can render a couple of uh, low-resolution images uh, yourself. And at one point, uh, you just have to subscribe. And then it starts at, I think, 10 bucks a month. And then you can render 30 images. And then, but they also have like a 30 bucks and a 50 bucks a month uh, subscription, which basically give you the op the ability to render an infinite amount of images and um i downstairs here in in my rectory i still have a few picture frames that i bought at ikea but i don't really like the ikea prefab art that they sell there um it's okay but it's a bit generic plus everyone who shops at, at, at ikea has those same images you want to have something unique. Well, I've long time for a long time I've thought of maybe just paying an artist to paint something for me, but then I don't know artists that paint what I like and what if it what if I don't like it? It's very expensive. Um plus I don't even know if you can fit real art in those cheap uh, photo frames of of IKEA. But now I was thinking, well, maybe I'm just going to try something with mid-journey and i'll just because some of that stuff people are sharing that on mastodon and on twitter and on facebook and and it's all pretty low resolution but some of those images i save them to my hard drive whenever i see a, an artificially an art how do you say that an ai image that i really like i just save it because i was like well maybe maybe i can enhance it and print it out and just hang it on a wall it's that good and then I've also noticed that some people will use that those images for their book covers, for instance. Or like Greg Willits, he's uh, writing a novel on uh, Substack. Um, and he uses Midjourney to create um, illustrations for his story. And it's pretty cool. It's, I mean, yeah, the... the the, the 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 possibilities are endless and now with version 4 it gets so photorealistic i'm thinking what if 20 years from now you can create an entire movie that looks as good as this or video games there this is just the beginning of something like totally something that we've we're never able to see before it's ugh. Fantastic. I'm so... I love this. It's also scary. It's frightening. Like, <laughs> is it going to make all artists obsolete? I don't think so, but it's still very, very... Uh, I, I never thought that I would 
live to see the day that that computers were able to do stuff like this. And 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 what is this really art? It, it's true. It's really beautiful. So what is this beauty? Where is it coming from? Can the Holy Spirit work through computer algorithms? It's just a question that I have as a theologian. Because like true art is oftentimes you feel like there's more to this than just a talent of the artist. Something is shining through. How does that work with artificial intelligence? I don't know. It's mesmerizing. Of course, now that I think about it, of course, the mid-journey wouldn't be able to generate these images had it not been fed with, with human art in fact one of the issues that i have with catholic imagery is that apparently they didn't feed it much catholic imagery because it all looks really like creepy um so maybe if we would feed it for instance um, a couple of thousand um icons from the orthodox tradition or stained art glass photos well maybe over time it will you will say hey just give me a photo or like a, a stained glass image of uh, saint martin of tours or something like that maybe it can generate something completely new (sighs) the possibilities are endless i'm just i'm stunned that 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 this is possible nowadays Well, to wrap things up, we um, pay a quick visit to my kitchen. And uh, I'm, I'm not here to give you a recipe today, but I want your advice. For those of you that are sometimes making pizza at home, homemade pizza, I'm not talking about, you know, those of you that order that at uh, whatever takeaway place or, or, or even worse, the frozen pizzas <laughs> from your local supermarket. But I try to make, my own pizza. I've, I've tried that several times. I've got this uh, bread machine and it has a, a mode for pizza dough. And I followed the instructions and it's, you know, perfectly fluffy pizza dough. Really no hassle. But then I roll it out. I put the ingredients on top of it. You know, the tomato sauce and then some mozzarella and some other cheeses. Some, sometimes some some meat, some artichokes and whatnot. I, I I love that about homemade pizza. I can just make really nicely layered special variants of pizza. Whereas if you would buy that at supermarket, especially the more fancy pizzas, they're very expensive and they're not really that tasty. My problem is not that stage. It's then I put it in the oven and I always thought that you had to make pizzas at very high heat. So I turn up the heat. I put the pizza in. And it, it looks great, and I take it out. It smells great, but then it's so dry. And, like, the pizza dough is very tough and cr- way too crunchy. And then uh, it, it tastes and feels nothing like the pizza that I would order from, you know, New York pizza or uh, Domino's or, 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 or even, even the, the supermarket pizzas. I'm, I'm almost afraid to say it here but they actually taste better than the ones that I make myself. What am I doing wrong? Why is, are all my pizzas so like, like concrete and so dry? And, it's, and <laughs> you will say, hey, but you, you leave it in the oven for too long. The thing is, I also experimented with that, and I, I only put it in the oven for a short time, but then the dough wouldn't be, it would still be raw in the middle, and it's still 
not fluffy or ah. so I, I cannot figure it out what am I doing wrong if you have any advice for me I'd love to hear it because I love pizza but I'm so discouraged to make pizza myself what am I doing wrong I'll leave you with that <laughs> my pizza trouble thank you so much for the privilege of your time I always end with the quote of the day Unfortunately, I forgot to look up one. <laughs> uh, but there's always uh, my Instagram. Here's a good one. The biggest lesson that I learned this year is probably to not give so much of yourself to people who will not do the same for you. Let's think about that. All right. If you want to follow me, Just look for Father Roderick, wherever you are. If you want to try out that Mastodon thing that I talked about last week, don't be afraid. It's fun. It's a, it's a nice whole new world. If you want to look me up, I'm Father Roderick at mastodon.online. If you want to support me, there's patreon.com slash Father Roderick. And for my patrons, of course, there is Story Secrets, extra podcasts every week, and a vibrant community on Discord. And of course, you help me to reach out to people that otherwise would never come across a priest. So, yeah, there's that. And uh, if you want to catch me live, make sure to be subscribed to my YouTube channel and uh, follow me on social media. See you next time. God bless. <laughs>